Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Will Carroll, aka the Injury Expert. So welcome onto the show, Will. Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, before we delve into today's episode, oh, oh well, can we kind of go back and kind of look at your journey, obviously, of your humble beginnings to where you are, obviously, today, um, obviously, writing about injuries, but obviously trying to treat them? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. For me, uh, I, there's a lot of times people think I'm a doctor, they think uh, I'm an athletic trainer, a physical therapist, I'm none of these things. I'm not a medical professional. Basically, what I am is a translator. Uh, there, there are so many injuries and, and things in that realm, sports science, uh, pharmacology, all these things that, that surround sports performance. Uh, and it was just that nobody was talking about them when I started this. Uh, and I had a unique background. My father's in sports medicine. I'd been around sports my entire life. I've been an athlete. Uh, up to the level my talent carried me, which wasn't that far. Uh, but for me, it was that story that just wasn't being told. And I had either the arrogance or stupidity to think I could tell it. And so over the last 20 years, that's what I've been doing and, and kind of following where it goes. Everything from explaining to people what a sprained ankle is to why a sprain is actually a tear. And that every time you hear somebody go, oh, it's just sprained, they're they don't know what they're talking about, uh, to telling a story of the great people out there, the, the doctors, the athletic trainers, the physical therapists, uh, down to the people on the fringes. Uh, I wrote a book about performance-enhancing drugs back in 2005, uh, and uh, there's a lot of people out there uh, still today uh, doing some, some interesting work, now legal, uh, that, uh, that, that deserve to be told. Uh, so for me, it's been a journey of telling this story uh, trying to get people to understand just how important it is rather than just you know shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, it's part of the game. Yeah, injuries are a part of the game. And yes, sports performance is something that we think just happens, uh, especially in America. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I think one of the things we always think is just work harder, lift a bigger weight, uh, you know, put in a couple more hours at the gym, and you'll get better, which isn't always the case. You know, sometimes – you have to take a step back to take two steps forward. Sometimes you have to completely change your method or at the very least question your method before you get better. You know, I'm not that old, but I remember playing football in middle school and we didn't have water breaks. We just didn't have them. And when we did, we were told to hurry through them. Um, we would practice in all sorts of weather. You know, 100 degrees was a cool day for us. Uh, and that, that's Fahrenheit. Uh, so it's one of those things where uh, seeing how much things have progressed is pretty amazing. Even just over the 20 years I've been writing, things have progressed. And we're in an age now where we're not only asking the right questions, but we're actually starting to get some of the tools and resources to answer them. And then beyond that, the next step is to see how far we can take this. You know, uh, things fascinate me, like the, the Sub 2 project, trying to have uh, a, a two hours or less marathon. Actually, 
yeah, I'm not even sure I can drive 26 miles, you know, in my car uh, without needing to stop and take a break. But uh, just pushing the the limits in, you know, the athletes aren't changing that much. Their training regimens are, but you know, things like uh, carbohydrate loading during the race, uh, you know, aerodynamics, uh, the shoes were supposed to add four percent. Obviously, Nike uh, certainly wants us to believe it's always the shoes. But things like that. And, and now this data revolution we're going through. Uh, and, and I think really the biggest thing we're going to see over the next three years uh, is going to be the level of change that we see in the coaches. We're starting to see a generational change from, you know, we're always going to have those so-called old school coaches. But those so-called old school coaches are sometimes exactly the ones who are listening to the new school sports scientists uh, and who have the most empathy uh, for the people in the sports medical department. So I, I think we're, we're starting to see those people that grew up in this essentially come to power, uh, get to a place where they can make some differences. Uh, no place is more clear the, than at the University of Michigan, where, where football coach Jim Harbaugh is almost the definition of old school football coach. Uh, and yet he has one of the most advanced sports science departments and one of the best sports medicine departments around. Um, so I, I think this is a, a situation where we're going to see replicated over and over, uh, not just in American football, but across sports. Uh, and, and there in Europe, especially in, in uh, the UK, uh, way, 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 way ahead uh, of where we are here in America on that. But I think, Will, you raise a good point in terms of obviously people are focused on lifting heavy weights, getting in the gym more and more. But do you think that's maybe uh, more football culture? Because obviously from my background, the more weight you lift, your agility is going to be hindered because you're, you're, you're not as flexible. So I think athletes need to maybe take a pinch of salt and say, well, I need to get as strong as possible but I'm not hindering that element of my performance as well. Yeah, yeah, it's an oversimplification. You know, in, in the sport of baseball, uh, pitchers were always told, don't lift weights. Uh, hitters, same way. And we saw this change in the 80s, and we saw home runs go up. Obviously, steroids had something to do with that, but uh, yeah, not entirely, as we're seeing this year. Um, yeah, it's just a, a more is better culture would probably be a better way to say it. You know, it why do football players do bench press? Uh, you know, if you, if you go back, here, here's a European example. Um, there was an obsession in the, in the mid-2000s with distance that players ran uh, what we found was roughly a 10K. I was consulting with an English club, and there was a technology that used the cameras that were filming each player individually and would follow them. And somebody had figured out through some crazy calculus that how much the camera moved, you could calculate how far the player was running. I was like, well, that's genius. And so they would track it, and, and the players were running about 10 kilometers, almost all of them running about 10 kilometers. And it had nothing to do with performance. It had nothing to do with effectiveness. It had nothing to do with function. It certainly had nothing to do with wins. But it was really cool. <laughs> you know, we, he's running 10K. So maybe if we get uh, the, the easy answer was, well, let, let's get him better at running 10K. Let's get him kind of rudder fit rather than uh, European football fit. 
And that was horribly wrong. It made no difference. What it came down to was that's what we could measure. So that's what we, we thought we could affect. Uh, turns out it's not. It's recovery rate. It's sprints. It's positioning. There, there's probably a thousand things that go into effectiveness uh, for a Premier League team. Uh, but if you can't measure those, you couldn't do anything about those. So that's where this data revolution, the wearable revolution is really, really coming in because for years we've measured the wrong thing. We've measured what we could, not what mattered. But also I got this question for you, Will. Why do you think that Europe is ahead of the US in terms of sports science? It's a, that's a really good question, one I keep asking, and I haven't figured that one out. Uh, there, there's an easy answer, which is money. Uh, especially in football, which is, which is a European sport I follow most closely, but also we see a lot coming out of rugby, especially in the sports science realm. Uh, sport, uh, or companies like Kitman Labs focused on rugby. We've seen others uh, that, that have branched out into other sports. There was just more money. Teams were willing to spend on you know, research, uh, on sports scientists, on sports medicine, uh, and they listened to them. You know, it was about, gosh, I want to say 10, 15 years ago that uh, Real Madrid had a rash of hamstring injuries. And so what they did was researched it and gave out a bunch of money, not only to their own people, but to others. Uh, at the same time, other people were asking this question, and the result is uh, Nordic hamstring uh, programs. A and we see a reduction in hamstring injuries, uh, both for Real Madrid and other clubs, because they've shared the research uh, of you know, massive percentages. I've heard as much as 80%. So if you can spend some money now in research, you're not going to get the immediate result very often. It's going to take at least a season. Uh, and, and we, we know how quick things turn over. So I, I think that's it. I, there's something else culturally. I, I don't know what it is. And it's one of those things where I've been trying to figure out and go back and say, where was it? Honestly, I think there is some element of both the Soviet and uh, East German successes of the late 60s into the 70s. Uh, towards the breakdown of, of communism uh, because they were just so successful. But everybody knew it, was, it wasn't just the athletes. There was a, a major chemical component. There was uh, an enforced training component to it. Uh, and, and I do think that the idea that, you know, the evil scientist could affect performance that much, if you take away the evil, uh, then – why doesn't, if we have a good scientist, why doesn't that work for our sport? So I've always thought that had some element, but I, I, I've got absolutely no proof of that. But what, obviously, in terms of sport and like global actual finances, you would think the Americans would be pulling way ahead because of obviously the, what financial resources they have. Yeah, but they would have to actually use them. Last year, NFL teams, NFL teams, aside from a disputed $10 million research grant that they had for head trauma, spent less on research than one single League One club in football, in English football. And, and that's because there's a League One club I consult with. So I know what their budget on research is. And this is a, uh, for, for people that aren't familiar with, with uh, Football Association football, there's tiers. Premier League is like the major leagues. 
then the championship is a level below, and then League One is a level below that. So we're talking about third-tier English football, which is amazing football. Uh, we don't get a chance to watch that much over here, but it, it's a great brand of football. The one team in the third tier of English football spent more than the entire NFL, and I'm talking the NFL itself and the teams. There is almost no appetite for conducting their own research. Uh, Major League Baseball, again, has conducted almost no research over the years. And what they have done, they control very, very tightly. I know some really good people, uh, advanced analysts, physical uh, or sports scientists, physical therapists that have done work for teams. They do not share it. They are scared to death that their secrets are going to get out to the other teams and they're going to lose whatever advantage they think they have. Problem is, most of them don't have that much of an advantage. And working together, they could get better results and make the entire sport better. But there's just not a culture of research and sharing. And there is a whole lot of win now. It, uh, there, there's a whole lot of uh, you know, a dollar not spent on payroll is a dollar wasted. When, you know, I, I know English club, Real Madrid for years said, for every $100 we spend uh, on payroll, we're going to spend $1 on research. I don't know if they still do that, uh, but you know, it doesn't sound like much. Uh, it, just think about this uh, for American sport. You know, if, if every uh, NFL team with uh, a salary cap of over 120 million was spending a million on research, that would be a giant leap forward. And maybe not them. You know, here in Indianapolis, if they wanted to give it to Purdue University, a great research and science university, uh, for a project that could do a lot of good and that could do a lot of good, not just for the Colts, but for sport, assuming they shared that. So uh, there is just not a culture. We're starting to see a change, but it's a really slow evolutionary change uh, that, that already happened for whatever reason in Europe. But if we talk about the NFL more specifically, do you think that they don't do it because they don't want the backlash of say you brought up the, obviously the concussion one is the big one at the yeah. moment of obviously anything that could bring up a possible lawsuit from former players. Uh, yes and no. I think certainly with concussions, though that's largely been decided by the concussion settlement. Um, so, no, I don't think that's it. I just don't think there's a supporting culture. Um, it, it's, it's really tough to say exactly why. Um, but with, with the NFL, let, let's take, for instance, ACLs. Uh, we've seen a rapid increase in ACLs, and there's no research being done. Uh, in the NFL or funded by the NFL, at least publicly, uh, that's focused on this. Yet we know here in America, Dr. Burt Mandelbaum, uh, the head coach for U.S. soccer, has a program called PEP, P-E-P, PEP, uh, which is an ACL uh, injury reduction program that has shown great results, 70, 80% results, uh, just by doing this 10-minute freely available program and talking to NFL teams some of them do it, but you would think something that's been proven in America to have results, you would think this. Colleges don't do this. You know, major colleges. You talk to a high school coach and they don't even know such a thing exists. It sounds like magic. Like ACL reduction? No, those are just part of the game. The, the education system, the, the distribution system of how we get the, that out there just hasn't happened yet. And it's, it's stupid. It's just stupid because this is something much like 
a Nordic hamstring program. Institute it. You, you just took 15 minutes out of practice uh, that you probably weren't uh, optimizing anyway. Why every single team at every single level doesn't have this is absolutely beyond me, and yet that's the fact. Well, listening to that answer there, Will, you, you, you could probably constitute that they don't put importance on, obviously, prehab. Yeah. Yeah, they, do. they don't. Uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. You know, physical performance is mostly about the results on the field. Uh, yeah, Americans are obsessed with results rather than preparation. You know, if you can go out there and, uh, you know, I went to Texas A&M, and the famous story is the 12th man. The guy comes out of the, the stands, uh, gets on the field, and makes a big play. Well, people think that just happens, that, that you know, John Wayne's going to wander into town uh, and kill the bad, uh, the bad gunman uh, and make everything right. No, we, we don't want to believe that steroids uh, or, or any performance-enhancing chemical can make you better, that what you eat really matters, uh, that, that practice techniques or, the, yeah, th- there's an element of Calvinism to sport in, in America where everything's a little bit predestined and, and that every once in a while somebody steps out uh, and does something amazing and is a, a truly exceptional. And we like exceptional in America. We, we will reward it and then we will tear it down. Uh, yeah, uh, we will. We we like exceptionalism, and, and then we want to flatten it out uh, to get everything back to the normal Calvinistic predetermination of what we believe sport should be. Oh, I I I'd probably agree to that point. The UK is very, the media wise in the UK is very much similar to that as well. Yeah, you you want it to. I, I being in the media, and not currently, but I, I still think of myself that way. There is nothing more disturbing than a complete outlier, something that you didn't see coming, performance that goes against it. It's a great story. I mean, I mean the NFL is kind of built around the myth of any given Sunday that one team could beat another team. Not true. Then <laughs> uh, again, it happens. Uh, so it, it's, it's true at some level. But at, at, at that point, somebody goes out and hits, you know, 60 home runs, uh, Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, just came up one short uh, of that this season. And immediately people are thinking, oh, must be steroids. Uh, you, you can't be exceptional without us trying to flatten you back uh, a, a, and pull you back into the herd. Uh, same thing with Aaron Judge. You know, uh, when, when he came to light this year and people started seeing him, uh, the fact that he's 6'7", 280, didn't seem to occur to them that that, that alone made him different. They're like, oh, he must be on steroids. I'm like, no, he's huge to begin with. If you're on steroids, he would be, you know, bigger than Lou Ferrigno. Uh, yeah, it, it's just a really difficult environment, and and it's slow. It's evolutionary, uh, but I am starting to see cracks in it. I'm I'm starting to see cracks in that facade. I'm starting to see certain teams bring things in. I mentioned the University of Michigan and uh, and Dr. Fergus Connolly. Uh, he does great work. So we are seeing those cracks in the foundation, but uh, you know, as far as a wholesale change, I think I don't think it's going to be overnight. I think it's going to be evolutionary. But coming back to your initial point of obviously uh, football programs not utilizing sports science, and we could probably maybe single out the co- the college teams and the NFL because it's readily available on the internet. Maybe less so the high school because. 
unless they maybe went to higher education, they don't know how readily available that information actually is. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing is when I, when I talk to a high school coach, uh, I don't expect them to know better, um, which is too bad. I mean, why can't we get this information out? Uh, It's not like coaches live in a vacuum. They've got the internet like everybody else, but yeah, the information isn't evenly distributed, which is on the entire system. Um, For colleges, it's, it's a simple, it's a rejection of the future. So many things, especially in baseball, football is the same way, but especially in baseball, some of this in basketball as well. Um, It's so tradition bound. If you ask somebody why they do this, it's usually because I learned this from my coach. Uh, I, I saw this at a seminar from a coach I respected. Almost everything is, is passed down. And, and to break that, you have to ask that naive question uh, of, if we didn't always do it this way, how would we do it? Or as I've tried to rephrase it a little bit, is the way we're doing it the best way possible? And not enough people ask that question. Not enough people realize there's another possibility. Um, Most of the change we see comes from either desperation or absolute control. I mean, if you absolutely control the team, you can do anything you want. If if you're the team owner and you bring in your own guys and and you set down a path, uh, people are going to do it. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, because usually the guy that owns it doesn't know anything about the sport itself. Um, on the other hand, if you get really desperate, uh, this is the kind of the untold story of the Oakland Athletics. Here's a team with no money, bad stadium, small market-ish, uh, and, and losing. They had nothing to lose. Billy Bean was going to get fired if that team didn't turn around. And so here's a guy who uh, detailed in the book, less in the movie, was the absolute antithesis of everything statistics. This was a guy who was a scouting dream. He was a player. He looks like a Greek god. And and, all these advantages, and yet if if he hadn't reached out, if he hadn't taught himself, if he hadn't asked that question of what can I do, uh, there are a thousand correct answers to that question and and it depends on which one works but it was desperation that did it and I don't think enough teams get desperate uh, I, I don't I don't think you see a ton of changes and we see homogenization around things uh, take for example shifts in baseball the shift is when you move players from their standard setup over to one side because a player is much more likely to hit it that way um, and this has been done since the 40s. Uh, Ted Williams was uh, the first one that teams regularly shifted for, the manager uh, and shortstop, Lou Boudreau. Uh, you, you'll hear it called the Williams shift, the Boudreau shift. But it was largely abandoned because it didn't look right. It was aesthetically not pleasing, and it seemed almost a little unfair. Yet, mid-2000s, when we started to get better data, teams realized, oh, wait. If the idea is hit it where they ain't, I got to put it where they are. And now over the last five years, we've seen more and more and more shifts. But at the same time, we're not seeing any changes in those shifts. You know, they're basically putting players 
in the same places. All the teams are doing the same things in the same situations, which homogenizes it, removes any advantage. Is, why do people stand where they stand? Uh, I haven't gotten a really good answer to that from somebody outside it. You know, if you've got eight men to stand in the field, seven actually, pitcher and catcher can't move. But if you, you, you could position seven people in a specific way for a specific hitter, which is obviously doable, where would you put them? And why does no one do this? <laughs> yeah. uh, and you ask that to somebody in baseball and they kind of give you a, a mean look because they haven't even, they've never thought of what the answer might be or they have and realize nobody in their organization is going to do it. But then that's, that's moving forward. That's a progression. But coming back to your point with, um, with the NFL and probably, well, you could probably generalize and say every sport in North America. Do you think they don't focus so much on research because there's not that desperation, which would be the case in European sport because of relegation? Um, definitely. Uh, that's, that's one. Um, most of them are, are profitable at some level. I mean, some may lose money in a season, but when you sell a team, uh, you know, 10 years from now and, uh, you know, the Marlins, uh, the Florida Mar- or Miami Marlins for years said, oh, we're losing money, we're losing money, we're losing money. But he made nearly a billion dollars when he sold it uh, over what he bought it for. So I, d- I don't feel real bad for losing money. If you told me my house was going to lose money every year, but I can sell it for $10 million at the end of the time, I'm going to find a way. So, yeah, there, there, isn't, there isn't a lot of desperation. Um, you know, and when there is, they fire somebody. Uh, more slowly than in European football. Um, but then it's sort of a rebuilding process. And they think, well, it, it's, it's a different man. It's sort of the great man theory of history. Uh, if we just get a better fit and he puts the right people around him, then everything will be fine. And, and we see that over and over. It's not that the organization is poorly structured or that, you know, I'd say keep the coaches in place and and start hiring around them better. Uh, you know, I, I'd love to see some, uh, a team, instead of firing their coach, say, you know what, I'm going to build a sports science department. I'm going to really listen to them over everybody else. Just a year. Let's see what happens. Um, really, you know, three years, five years would be a better uh, time frame. But, you know, wh- what if an owner came in? You know, th- this has always been my kind of hope uh, was that, some of this money coming out of Silicon Valley was going to find its way into sport. And it really hasn't. Um, most of, most of the, the geeks from Silicon Valley don't really care about sports. Where we do find it occasionally has been exceptionally successful. I mean, the Golden State Warriors probably have as strong a sports science and sport technology focus. Uh, there's a great book out now called uh, Beta Ball by Eric Malinowski. Uh, just coming out this week, uh, and it breaks down just how they did this and why every team wouldn't do this uh, is beyond me. I mean, obviously, there's some advantages, uh, a little bit of luck in drafting a Steph Curry, um, but the the kind of things they did around him to amplify that uh, are really, really accessible to other teams. So, again, I, you know, instead of firing the coach, hire a sports science department. But I think you raise a good argument with there with, with the Golden State Warriors. I think people slate them because oh, they, they become a super team. Yeah, but when they drafted all those players at the beginning, did you think they were going? Did people realistically think they would achieve what they have done now? Probably not. 
No, no, uh, no one. I, I thought Steph Curry was a good mid-major player. And, and that's no insult. Um, but he was small. Uh, would his shot work there? Um, but the biggest thing for me is that I didn't think Steph Curry could stay healthy. And that was why he fell. Everybody omits this from his story at this point. But his ankles were trash. I mean, just absolute trash. He had to have – it's not an experimental surgery, but for an NBA player, it was the equivalent of an experimental surgery to tighten his ankles in a very specific way. And he had that. And that could have been the end of his career. And if that surgery hadn't worked to the level which it worked, we're not talking about Steph Curry. There's no Steph Curry shoes. There's no Golden State Warriors winning championships. Uh, we'd be talking about LeBron being even greater than he is. Uh, so, no, you can take everything Steph Curry's done. You can take virtually everything that the, uh, the, the Golden State Warriors have done because I think we can all fairly agree that without Curry, that whole thing falls apart. Um, without that surgery, without that surgeon, without that technique, and without it working, none of this happens. And that, to me, is pretty astounding. And how many teams would have taken that risk? How many teams could afford to take that risk? Both, uh, you know, certainly you can take a risk on a mid-round pick, but you, you can't miss on too many of those. And, and uh, whoever said, you know, there had to be a doctor or an athletic trainer going, this is going to work. Uh, we're going to pay this guy anyway, and he's going to miss some time, but he's, he's going to come back and he's going to be the second best player in the NBA. I'm guessing they probably didn't say that at the time, but that, that's essentially what he was arguing for. And it, it's, it's a forgotten part of the story. But I think that that's an element of risk, obviously, because there's not been many, that many NBA busts because of injury, but when it does happen, Ooh. that's been, that's been the case, hasn't it? Uh, Greg Oden, uh, you know, I hate to call that guy a bust because he worked so hard, but you know, an, an unbelievable talent, uh, an unbelievable physical specimen, but couldn't stay healthy. Think how many players, Sam Bowie, if you want to go back, uh, it's not just big men. And then it's the question of altering careers as well. You know, Paul George, what might he have been save for uh, that, that gruesome leg injury? Uh, what might it have meant to the Indiana Pacers? W would he be demanding a trade now? This is a team that went to the NBA Finals and went to Game 7 with, with the Super Heat. Who knows? Uh, injuries, they do really take out a lot more players than we think, and they alter careers in ways uh, that we don't think. Uh, the Kyrie Irving trade this year. Uh, Isaiah Thomas uh, was a key part of the trade going to Cleveland. And there were a lot of questions over his durability. I mean, not only just because of his size, but he's, he's got uh, some physical conditions uh, with his hip that, that had teams very, very concerned. Um, but here's two of the best teams in the NBA, two of the best medical staffs around, and they're arguing over something that most teams would not touch. Just absolutely, if they saw the condition of his hip, they would say, I can't maintain that. I don't think he can play long term. There is no way I'm going to do that. And there are so few teams that, that would be willing to do that. Uh, to me, it was kind of laughable that people were talking about rescinding that trade because I was like, these are two of the best teams. They knew everything they were getting into uh, just from the records. Uh, and, and these are two, two of the few teams that could really do it. So I think in the NBA, injuries absolutely 
change things. I think in the NFL more so. Um, I, I was watching the Indianapolis Colts last night, and they were talking about how durable Frank Gore was. <laughs> nobody forget. Nobody seems to remember uh, all his knee injuries at the start, the end of his college career, the start of his pro career. This is a guy who almost didn't stick in the league because he couldn't stay healthy, and yet here he is, the top ten uh, rusher of all time. So, had that happened ten years previous, his career ended, just flat out ended. We couldn't have repaired what he had. Um, so. You've got to thank uh, Jim Andrews and all the guys who ha- have kind of commoditized ACL surgery at this point where uh, Dalvin Cook goes down and you just kind of shrug your shoulders and say, see you next year. I know you'll be back and I know you'll be almost as good. Um, we, we, we have you know, Tommy John surgery in baseball, uh, ACL and ham- hamstring surgery. I mean, uh, take a look at Manchester United this season. Uh, phenomenal start to the season. Phenomenal start in the Champions League. What if Paul Pogba doesn't come back after hamstring surgery? Uh, you know, if this team finishes just shy of, you know, they get knocked out by uh, another great European team. If they come up just shy of Man City, uh, everybody's going to be asking the what if. And the what if is very, very focused on, uh, you know, something. Now, has their sports science department and, and their sports medicine and the doctors and Pogba's people, have they done everything they possibly can to prevent the injury? Yeah, but it happened anyway. Uh, if you can reduce things by 80%. Uh, it's that 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 other leftover uh, bit that's always problematic when it's your star. So uh, I do think injuries affect the game. I'm obviously biased, uh, but <laughs> I think they affect the game a whole lot more than people think. Uh, and so when they are preventable, we have to try and prevent them. When they do happen, we have to try to minimize them because those what ifs are, are one of the great things of sport. But then the argument to that will would be is obviously educating players, um, obviously the people coming up, about obviously taking care of your body from it being okay, the performances on the field, or on the ice, on the court, etc. Right. But if you can do everything beforehand, be it warm-up, etc., to get your body more durable, uh, more flexible, so you do not, so you minimize that risk of injury, you're going to obviously elongate your career. Well, you certainly are giving yourself a better chance. Um, you know, you're giving yourself more, more roll of the dice. And, and whether you're a champion, whether you do end up one of those people that are they're just uh, injured or not good enough, that happens. But we are starting to see a shift in, in, in functional fitness, in, in getting people specific training for specific sports. We're even starting to see uh, changes in, in what specific – uh, positional changes, uh, you know, getting, you know, getting a forward ready is different than getting a guard ready. Uh, getting an offensive lineman is different than getting a defensive back ready. They have, they have different tasks. They have different needs. They have different function. Uh, so they have to get ready a different way. And yet, if you think back, uh, how do we warm up? You warm up as a team. Uh, you know, you're doing – jumping jacks and toe touches. And you still see this today with major programming. And I was like, why, what are you doing? Um, on the other hand, there, there's, uh, there was a game on Thursday night here. Uh, Packers and the, the Bears played the NFL game. 
and there was a lightning storm. So they went inside, there was almost an hour delay. And when they came back out, I was watching, I was watching on TV like everybody else. So you couldn't see everything. One of the things I saw was that the bears were just kind of jogging around. It didn't look terribly organized. I imagine there was more to it than that, but they were, they were just kind of doing the, the so-called normal things. That's on the other side. Uh, the Packers had laid out cones and they were running kind of an S shape where you know, one side they were going laterally, one side they were jogging, and then they took a hard, a hard cut and a sprint. And I was like, okay, that's, that's more functional. And somebody thought, okay, I've got to go get the cones. We've got to set this up. That they had thought about what that 10-minute warm-up would be. I'm assuming it was some variation of what they do pregame. Uh, but the idea that there would be any sort of differentiation in the NFL is not something most people would notice. But was that an advantage? I don't know. The Packers won. So <laughs> I got to think every little bit helps. Uh, but, you know, have we taken it down to that level of thought where – sports science and sports medicine are getting a voice in, in that. And how much does that lead to performance? Uh, again, this comes back to data. You know, uh, once we, we get players with GPS trackers and, and uh, RFIDs and, and heart rate monitors uh, and, and more uh, and biomechanics, of course, then uh, we're going to get some really amazing answers. So I think what we're going to find in the next 20 years of my career is going to be just vastly, vastly better than what I saw in the first 20. I'm quite surprised when you say that, Will, in terms of GPS. You think, for us, that's commonplace seeing that on the TV here for, for, for them just training. Yeah, and, and not here. Um, you're seeing it more and more. Uh, companies like Catapult uh, are starting to come in more, but uh, they're actually not allowed in the game in the NFL. Uh, they're not allowed on the field in MLB. Uh, the NBA has its own tracking system, which is camera-based, so they don't allow uh, any wearables uh, at all. Uh, the NFL only allows um, one tag on a player, uh, which is embedded in the, in the shoulder pads, um, and we barely see that. It, it's very, very controlled, these so-called next-gen stats. Uh, so, yeah, this is something that most people, most fans, uh, aren't even conscious of existing. Uh, let alone been exposed to it. Inside sport, they know about it, and we're starting to see more and more of it. Major colleges, some high schools are doing it. Uh, the question there is, what are you using it for? You know, uh, there, there are far too many people. Catapult's a great system, uh, but if you don't know somebody who knows how to, A, read that system, and then adjust, given the data, uh, and then on top of that, a coach is going to listen. Uh, too many times it's the, you know, third assistant coach, or the graduate assistant that gets stuck running that system. And, you know, if he comes in there and says, hey, coach, your star running back, uh, his workload's a little high. We need to back off on him today to get him ready for game day. Uh, he's not going to be a graduate assistant very long. <laughs> he just doesn't have the voice uh, or the knowledge base to really carry that forward. So we are starting to see that come through, uh, but it, it's still not embedded, and it's certainly not uh, getting an equal seat at the table in very many places. And obviously you were saying they don't have that equipment on any games. Is, that, is the argument for, for them not doing that because of health and safety of the, and obviously the risk of the player? No, I've, I've never heard a good argument. Um, you know, especially for the NFL, having, you know, a catapult on them. Uh, they, they send players out there with mic packs on them. Uh, 
Uh, so, you know, <laughs> saying a catapult uh, would be something. They're saying they couldn't be out there with a Modus QB on. Uh, yeah, no, there, there's absolutely no reason uh, you wouldn't want to do that uh, or shouldn't be able to do that for health and safety reasons. This is simply, uh, I don't want to say Luddite, but it's, 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 they're just not ready for it yet. Which is, the technology's there. Uh, the attitude in a lot of places isn't, which, which that makes an interesting case because we're going to have places that get an advantage. If you can get the technology in there, uh, college baseball, uh, we've seen adaption of technology, both in workload management uh, and in, in, in arm strength and arm management uh, through the modus technologies. Teams that, not every team has it. Not every pitcher out there has it. And so there's a distinct advantage for those that have it and can understand it uh, and have, have the right coaching, the right guidance along the way. Uh, so th there is a real advantage to be had uh, for teams. But then that, that argument, obviously, you, they're saying oh, you, they, they'll send people players out with mic packs on. But it's commonplace in rugby that it's embedded in the top of the shirt in rugby, right. and you can yeah. you, you know exactly what I think because it's I think it's probably at least five years that it's been in the game. Oh, absolutely! You know exactly what that is. Yeah, yeah. You 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 can see it. There's no question about it. We've seen it in, in other sports, um, but and a number. I, I I would say it's probably in the twenties of the thirty-two NFL teams use it in practice. What's the difference in a game? there's there's no difference it's just it's not there why yeah uh, major league baseball allows a certain number of wearables in games uh but we don't know at all how many of those are actually being worn in games um nba last year a player was wearing a whoop bracelet um and i love whoop but i i just laugh every time i say it uh <laughs> i think was their their goal uh but a player left his whoop bracelet on on the court and got fined for it um, because it's not allowed. Now we know that players are wearing them. We know teams are using them, but you're missing this really important part of data um, where, you know, if we've got everything except the game and you would think it'd go the other way. I want everything from the game, everything else I'll figure out. Um, they're equally as important. You can get 24 seven data. You're going to get, more data, better data, and figure things out quicker. But yeah, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I've heard, I have heard that the NHL is doing something new. I don't know what. I've got to assume it's catapult or something like it. Um, I know they've experimented with camera systems and haven't had a lot of success with that for whatever reason. Um, but I've heard they're actually going to be doing some tracking. Uh, their TV rights went over to, to excuse me, MLBAM, who's done phenomenal work uh, the, the advanced media arm of Major League Baseball. Now that they're running the NHL, I'm curious whether some of those, uh, especially their camera-based stuff, has come over. But I've heard they're using some sort of tracking technology this year. Uh, the season opens this week, so hopefully uh, somebody will do one of those opening day stories that will tell us about uh, those new changes. And my penultimate question for you, Will. Obviously, with the NFL, the players have got bigger over time. Has there been a correlation with more and more injuries because, as a result of it? Yes. Uh, one of the toughest things to tell is the cause of an injury. Um, you know, bigger, stronger, faster has happened not just in sport but in society. 
and sometimes that's changed. You know, I, I saw a recent study that said uh, the linebacker size had peaked and had come back down um, because we were seeing 250, 260, 270, you know, 280 uh, in terms of weight. And now you're starting to see smaller but faster uh, linebackers, the Von Miller types. Um, you know, there aren't too many guys who are 300 pounds and really, really fast. They're all in the NFL, but uh, those guys are few and far between. So speed has become more a part of the game. That said, because guys are going faster, uh, because shoes have gotten better, it's not just the players, it's the equipment that's gotten better. Uh, The shoes have gotten better. I think that's why we're seeing more foot and ankle injuries is because we've got bigger and stronger uh, and faster on top of better traction, better surfaces. It's just more stick. It's my friction theory. I'm convinced that if you cut hard enough, something's got to give. And it used to be, if you, if you played any sport on grass or turf, you went to cut and you slid. You, you just didn't have that capacity. Now, when they stick too much, oftentimes the ankle or the outside of the foot that snaps. And that's why we're seeing more. We saw this in, in soccer, um, European football, where there were a number of foot injuries, especially about five years ago, five, six years ago now, where there were that rapid lightening of the shoes, where the, the, the vapor and I forget what Adidas's really light one was. The Addy Zero was one. Um, but they're, they're really, really light. And all of a sudden we got a few more foot injuries. And I think we figured out quickly there wasn't quite as much support, but they were just a better shoe. But they were too good a shoe uh, (laughs) at some level. So bigger, stronger, I'll go back to my linebacker thing. We're not seeing less injuries because linebackers got smaller. They got faster. The force is the same. You know, the, the force is mass times acceleration. We increase the acceleration if we decrease the mass just a little bit. Uh, the force is still the same. The equipment's gotten better. I was, uh, was watching last night's uh, Sunday game, and they were, they were showing a player not that long ago, Kenny Easley, and he was running down uh, a player. And his, his uh, shoulder pads were enormous. I mean, they looked like, you know, David Byrne and stopped making sense. And, and – I just, I had to pause it and look at it. I was like, wow, when was this? This was the eighties. Why were these so big? Material science. We've gotten them better and better and better. And players have gone to a smaller, they're willing to take more of the shock if it'll be a little lighter. Uh, We've seen a number of chest injuries, largely because uh, they don't have that extension that goes further down the chest and there's just less padding. If you're a couple ounces lighter, you're a couple milliseconds faster. So that's a trade-off a lot of people have made. So, yes, bigger, stronger, faster has led to more injuries. Everything we've done has kept it kept that slope from going up like this. Uh, you know, the fact that we're keeping it even is probably a, a statement of success for the sports medicine people. And my final question for you, Will – if you have to summarize this episode into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? It's opportunity is there uh, right now, no matter your sport, no matter uh, your physical condition, to take advantage of the, the opportunities that we have in sports science and sports medicine to make yourself better. 
if you're willing to take that advantage. Now, unfortunately, there's cost disadvantages, uh, and, and you know, none of these technologies are cheap. Uh, some of them are much cheaper than others, uh, but it, you, know, uh, you talk to little kids who want to play. This is why soccer is such a great game. You just need a ball and a net and a couple friends. Uh, and, and so many times you see these commercials of kids in Brazil or, or uh, kids in, in suburban Portugal who uh, fashion their own football and turn out to be Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, so I, I don't think the technology is necessary, but I think as you want to get better, as you have opportunity, uh, you have that opportunity now through uh, the wearable revolution, through the data revolution, and through just pure sports science. Uh, I think the opportunities are better for any player at any level right now than any other time in history if we'll just take advantage of it. I think that's very knowledgeable uh, information there, Will. So once again, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.